This is episode 221 with strength and conditioning coach, contributor to health publications like T Nation and Women's Health, owner of the gym Core in Brookline, Massachusetts, and former cross-country runner, Mr. Tony Gentlecore. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to is a short clip from a much longer Q&A about all things weightlifting with strength and conditioning coach Tony Gentlecore. I recently surveyed all of our high-performance lifting clients, and I asked them for their biggest strength questions. This is a sample from the full Q&A, and be sure to stay tuned for details about how you can get your hands on the full conversation. If you're new to the podcast, you can expect conversations just like this between me and other thought leaders in the running industry. My goal is to elevate your thinking about the sport, help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. Strength Running also has an active YouTube channel with hundreds of videos on how to run longer, strength workouts, how to stay healthy and run with better form, and a lot more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. For more than a decade, we've been helping runners all around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. This episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker. They help you analyze your body's biomarker data to give you a clear picture of what's going on inside you. And then they offer science-backed recommendations to improve any metrics that are outside of your unique optimal zones. For a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store at insidetracker.com/strengthrunning. We're also supported by Elemental Labs, which makes my favorite salty electrolyte mix. Go to drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning, and you can sign up for a free sample pack to see what flavors you like. My favorites are citrus and watermelon. You'll get eight packets, four flavors, and you'll only have to pay five bucks for shipping here in the United States. That's drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. All right, our guest today is Mr. Tony Gentlecore. Tony is a former collegiate baseball player who graduated magna cum laude from SUNY Cortland with a degree in health education and a concentration in health and wellness promotion. After almost going pro in baseball, he worked as a personal trainer for several years in New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts before opening a sports performance gym with two other trainers that has grown into probably the foremost baseball training facility on the East Coast. His work has appeared in T Nation, the Boston Herald, Men's Health, Bodybuilding.com, Women's Health, and many others. Now, this conversation is a little bit different from our usual episodes in that every single question that I'm about to ask Tony was submitted by clients of our high-performance lifting weightlifting program. This interactive opportunity was given to every member of the program, and the full conversation is available to every member. If you'd like the entire thing, go to strengthrunning.com hpl to join. 
Tony and I are discussing quite a few topics in this episode, including alternative exercises to Olympic lifts for power, how to know if you're over or under training with regard to weightlifting, whether runners should wear a weight belt, modifications for older runners, how to find a great strength coach, and more. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Tony Gentlecore. All right, Tony, thanks so much for joining me to talk some shop about strength training, specifically for endurance runners. I'm excited. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm never shy to tell runners to lift heavy things and the, and the, and the benefits that will ensue. So I was, I was elated when you reached out to me a few weeks ago and, and asked to do this. So I'm ready. All right. Yes, <laughs> this is going to be fun. Uh, I have collected quite a few questions from a subset of the strength running audience, and they have a bunch of questions about strength training. I brought in you, strength expert, strength coach, to help dispel some of these myths and answer these questions. And I have some great opening questions, and then we're going to get into some more specifics on how to use strength training for imbalances, how yeah. to think about weightlifting over time as you go through cycle to cycle, and then we can end with some more technical lifting questions. Um, but let's start, and we're really going to start pretty specific here. Um, you know, these are questions from our audience. They're directly submitted by uh, members of one of our weightlifting programs, and they just have some some extra questions, and I'm so glad you're here, Tony. Not, so then I didn't see any questions asking me like my favorite Wu Tang member or anything like that. So we'll, we'll see <laughs> we'll see where it takes us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for our listeners, Tony's a big Wu Tang clan. Yes, fan. I am. As is as is uh, by proxy my my not, my soon to be five year old. He's he's uh, I love it. I, yeah. I grew up with a lot of Wu Tang when I was yeah. in middle school. Yes. <laughs> and tribe. You can't forget tribe called quest either. Right. Let's start with some more technical uh, questions about Olympic lifts. You know, these okay. are more explosive power yep. lifts. Um, if a, an athlete wants to avoid the Olympic lifts, but they're still wanting to develop power and explosivity, are there any alternative exercises that might be really helpful in this way? Yes. Uh, I think that's a great question to start off because I, I do think there's this idea that the the, the peak of, of training and like the, 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 the goal is to eventually start doing Olympic lifts. Um, and yes, far be it for me to say they don't work because they obviously do. I mean, we have years and decades and of, of uh, anecdotal and research to, to back the, the, those lifts up. Um, you know, it, full disclosure on my end, like I am not a coach that really utilizes them all that often, mainly because I don't have a lot of experience in myself and I'm totally fine with me saying, Hey, I know my limitations as a coach. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. Um, and I've had clients who in the past who have expressed interest in learning, uh, the, those lifts. And my first question to them is always, well, why, why do you feel like you need to learn them? Like what, what are the benefits you'll think you'll get out of using them? Um, which, you know, there's always some interesting answers there. And if they, if they say, I, I just really, I'm really interested in them. I think, I think they would help me. I always direct them to a coach, a local coach here in Boston, um, that can work with them on that. Um, but to answer the question, you know, my years at Cressy Sports Performance, and now that I'm on my own, there's a lot of exercises that I use that have a, a pretty, um, uh, uh, low entry level, whereas there, there's, there's a, what I mean by that is, is like they're, they're, these are ex these are exercises and drills that are, are very safe, 
Um, and with just a little teeny tiny bit of coaching, most anyone can do it without any real risk of injury or hurting themselves. And they're still going to get all the benefits of training power and explosiveness and all those things that they're looking to do. So the first things that come to my mind when I think of it is um, kettlebell swings. Uh, those are those are a, a very nice entry point for a lot of people. I'm a big fan of, of med ball exercises. Uh, assuming people have access to an, an appropriate wall to, to throw med balls to. Certainly, we can use the ground as well. Uh, I think using sleds uh, or prowlers is a, is a nice way of training uh, explosiveness and power. And obviously, uh, sprints. <laughs> you know, those, those are, you know, we just use our own body uh, in open floor space or, or, or open track space to work on being explosive in that capacity. So those would be... Um, a, a litany of exercises that I would use, and, and there are a myriad of, of of those of those exercises. Like there are a myriad of ways of, of, of implementing kettlebell swings. There's a many, many, many med ball exercises that work on uh, working on hip explosion and, 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 and core core power and all that. Uh, and certainly with sled work, you know, we're, we're programmed to think that it's very linear, but there's actually ways to implement them in a more lateral component and, and capacity. Um, so you know, with the, even with those three um options uh you're going to get a, a, a pretty a pretty wide and, and and healthy uh list of exercises that you can that you can choose from i love it there's a lot of great options there and i love that you mentioned sprinting because sure. runners can certainly use running to become more explosive and more powerful if it's done the right way if it's done safely within your program that's the key is with sprints to me it's all about full recovery so if you're going to do a sprint and you want to make sure they're explosive and you're, you're getting the most benefit out of it, you want to make sure that you're giving yourself ample time in between those sprints that you're fully recovered. This isn't something where you're like, okay, I'm going to do my sprint and rest 30 seconds and go again. No, you have to be fully recovered. So sometimes we're talking minutes in, in between repetitions here. If we really want to gain like the true benefit of, of doing them and, and, and shorter distances, of course. So I, you know, my, I have a lot of experience working with baseball players and to that capacity, we're doing a lot of 10-yard, 20-yard, 30-yard starts. Um, and, 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 you know, you, there's really only so much gas that we have in that, 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 that system that we're using of the body that, you know, 10 seconds is about max that we can actually do a full-on sprint. And I would even question somebody can do a full-on sprint for 10 seconds uh, at, at max power output. So, you know, sprinting distances are going to be fairly shorter as well if we want if we want to gain that that the true benefit of them for sure and in the running jargon what we're really talking about right now is speed development mm -hmm. and you're absolutely right you need a lot of recovery for it and if folks really want to add this kind of running to their program, it's a little bit alien to distance runners because they're not used to the max recoveries. They're yes. not used to repetitions oh. that are only 20 yards in oh length. Oh my gosh, you hit the nail on the head, Jason. Like I, <laughs> one of the things I always have to like throw my face into on is like getting my, my endurance athletes or the people I've worked with to understand this idea of like rest in between sets because <laughs> i always i always joke that they're kind of like sharks they're always they always want to be on the move they're constantly moving uh and if you tell them they're like okay just chill and for like a minute and a half and just like chill uh it's it's it can be painful at times because they just want to oh, i gotta be doing something uh so yeah this idea of rest and recovery uh certainly is going to be a uh something we're going to elaborate I'll elaborate more on a little bit later in the, uh, with these other questions but if we're talking again, if we're talking pure 
power, explosive training, like that idea of like full recovery, full rest in between quote unquote sets is very important. Absolutely crucial. So Tony, if someone is doing deadlifts or other backbending lifts, do you recommend everyone wear a waist belt or is that only for, you know, bodybuilders or power lifters who are really pushing the limits on the weight that they're trying to lift? So my quick answer is no. I, I would say the, 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 the more cogent question here is, are, are, do they, are they bracing well? Do they understand this concept of bracing and, and improving intra-abdominal pressure to protect the spine? Like a lot of times it's just a matter of, because we do have a natural weight belt in our body, the, the transverse abdominis, our obliques, you know, our, our, our core is kind of like a natural weight belt in of itself. So teaching somebody how to properly brace and maintain that brace while they are lifting something heavy and maintaining a proper spinal position, that comes down to coaching and just teaching them how to do it, do it correctly. Um, where, I, where I find there are benefits of using a weight belt because um, I'm not, I'm not adamantly against them at all. It just, it just, it just comes down to what's the appropriate time and place to use them. I'll say anytime, you know, we can start questioning that anytime someone's starting to work at like 85, 90% plus percent of one rep max. So when we are using heavier loads, I do find that using a weight belt when it's used correctly, like learning to push into the belt with our, with our, with our belly and into our, and also into our back. Um, just improving intradominal pressure to protect the spine. Um, but I also find it just gives people confidence, honestly, like uh, especially if they're doing higher rep work with like a 80% load or 85% load. I just find people uh, feel a little bit more confident when they have that belt on. And I'm, I'm totally fine with that. Uh, where it becomes problematic is when they're wearing that belt for everything. Uh, that's where I feel like it gets a little bit weird, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, you know, it, it becomes problematic when someone's wearing a belt to do lat pull downs or to do uh, bicep curls. Um, you know, I just think that's a bit silly. Uh, you know, you're not really gaining any benefit from it uh, in, in that context. So um, at the end of the day, I, I feel most of the time the answer is no, we don't need to be wearing weight belts unless you are training upwards of like 85, 90% of one rep max. So you don't really have to have that discussion. Love it. That's short and sweet. Yeah. So, and also, sorry. And also just to say if, uh, if I, I would also say if there's a, a former or, or, or a back history or, or a, a health history of, of lower back pain, or they've had issues with their lower back in the past, then maybe we're going to be having a conversation of, well, maybe we are going to be using the belt a little bit more often. But even in that context, uh, it just comes down to really good coaching and teaching that person how to brace properly understand body position, um, and making sure that they're doing stuff, um, correctly from a technique standpoint. Cause oftentimes if, if their technique is on point, um, the belt's not, it, it, most of the time they won't need the belt. So, um, but yeah, short answer, Jason, I'm sorry. Is I cut you off is like more often than not, no, you don't need a belt. <laughs> <laughs> um, now speaking of cues, you mentioned cues, one runner wants to know if there's any cues that might indicate a runner is either overtraining with regard to their strength work, or maybe even undertraining with regard to their strength work. Are there any common indicators uh, of someone that you might meet where you might say you're actually doing too much strength work or not enough? That's, that's a loaded question. And <laughs> this is one of those where I, well, <laughs> I'm good this, for those. Could, this could be a, an hour long podcast just to this question. Cause now we're talking about periodization and just general, general ideas of periodization and what that means. 
Um, so when the question comes up of whether or not someone is under training, over training, and what what cues give me that that uh, idea if someone's doing it, if someone's under training, um, if you ask me, most people drastically underload themselves anyway. So most times, because Overtraining was really not a thing for like 99.7% of the population because you really, as you know, you, you really have to go out of your out of your way to like actually overtrain yourself. You know, and endurance athletes, I would say, get pretty close to that. We're good um, at that. And, and you're very good at that. But in terms of undertraining with, with their strength work, you know, I find regardless if they're an endurance athlete, a professional football player, collegiate athlete, most people tend to uh, underload themselves anyway. And what I mean by that is like, if I prescribe an exercise for eight reps, uh, and they do that, they do their set and, but then they, they know they could do double that many reps. They're under training. (laughs) So a lot of it comes down to effort, um, and how, and how much, how many reps they may, they might have in the tank on any given exercise or any given load. Um, you know, and to me, uh, it also comes down to, you know, if, if a certain weight, say 30 pounds, say they're doing 30 pounds on a, on like a, a dumbbell bench press. If in week one, that feels heavy, which is normal and fine come week five or six, that still feels heavy. They're probably underloading themselves. Uh, if that makes any sense. So, cause to me, you know, progression isn't always just adding more weight, adding more sets, adding more reps, it isn't about adding more all the time. I mean, that's certainly a nice metric to go by. Like, honestly, you could just say, hey, what did I do week one? Add five pounds in week two. I mean, linear periodization does work. Um, however, feel of a set comes um, into play too. So, you know, I, I, if, if, if 30 pounds in week one is challenging for, for eight reps, you know, like you barely squeeze out that eighth rep, progression is by week four, like you though, yeah, you can handle that pretty well. And that, that is your cue to up the weight a little bit, if that makes sense. You know, I feel like that's a, a, a metric of progression that a lot of people gloss over because we, we've also been programmed to think that it's just about adding more weight, adding more reps. And that, that is not, that's certainly, yeah, it's a great metric of, of overload, but feel of a set comes in too. Like that is progress. Um, you know, overloading, usually comes down to just um, condensing training stresses or, or competing demands. So if someone is ramping up their mileage, you know, training for a 10K or a half marathon or a marathon, and they're also, you know, being pretty aggressive in the weight room, it stands reason that at some point, you know, they're going to accumulate fatigue over fatigue over fatigue, and they're never going to be able to express their true fitness level because they're always in a constant state of fatigue. So, you know, proper periodization um, and, and, and to that effect, I, I would point people towards uh, um, a pro, there, it's called Kilo. Um, uh, forget the run of it. Uh, you might be, you might recognize the name, uh, Jason. The, the guy's name is St- uh, Stefan or Stephane. He has this organization called Kilo Strength. Um, he does a fantastic job of, of discussing periodization um, and how like the ebbs and flows of training volume and how um, you know, where periodization comes in on, on, a, on a, a, a monthly scale, a six month scale, a yearly scale, especially if you are prepping for something specific like a marathon. It is important to understand uh, you know, how you're going to take into, um, in, into consideration like training volume, how many days a week you're training, how heavy you're going to go, how, what percentage weight should you should be using. Um, but 
yeah, that's that, that you know, it all it all comes down to yeah, that that whole idea of periodization and, and just like law of competing demands. Yeah, and I'll throw in the runner's coach perspective as well here. You know, you're overdoing it with your strength work if it's negatively impacting your running. Because sure. strength training should ultimately complement your running. It should make it better, it should make you faster, stronger, feel more powerful, uh, it should make you less susceptible to injuries. But you know, if you can't finish the mileage from a certain run because you're so sore or you're just so fried from a workout, you can't hit the paces you're supposed to hit in a given workout, you're probably lifting a little bit too much or sure. with too much effort. So that's, yeah, and that's, that's another what I mean. Like if, if, you know, the closer you get to an event um, or, or a race, you know, it, it, you know the, the, the less strength work or less intense work you're going to be doing, like once one ramps up, the other one should be ramping down. And it's just, there's that constant ebb and flow and everyone's a little bit different, you know, so there, there's certainly a lot of trial and error. Um, but a lot of times too, like people have to let go of their ego a little bit, like more pain is not better. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I know a lot of endurance athletes like that, like, Oh, I'm going to, I got this long run. I'm going to, I'm going to persevere. I'm going to grit my teeth and get through it. But yeah, you're, you're correct. If, if you're not hitting your numbers and you're not hitting your pace and, you know, you find even psychologically, if you just like your desire to train wanes, like that is a sign that you're probably overtraining. Like, you know, like I know for me personally, like if I, if I get to the point where it's like, uh, you know, it, it, it becomes more of a chore or something like it's something I have to add to the list to go to the gym. I know I'm probably overtraining to some, I'm like, uh, you know, so I, I probably have to like start taking stuff away rather than adding more in. Yeah, that's a great point too. I like the mental side of it mm -hmm. as well. So Tony, let's talk about the squat. Oh, okay. What are some of your best cues or, you know, ways of thinking about the squat or maybe even tricks for doing a, a basic squat with perfect form? Yes. So to me, whenever I'm discussing squat with an individual, uh, it's always about finding what's the best fit for them. So that, that starts with the assessment. So I, I liken it to when someone goes to the optometrist. So anyone who wears eyeglasses or wears contact lenses, when you go to the optometrist, you sit in that, you sit in that seat and they put that contraption over your eyes and it goes, Ch -ch -ch. does that look better? Ch -ch -ch. Or does that look better? And you're, you're finding your prescription for your left eye and your right eye. And left and right eye can be completely different. You could have one prescription for your right eye, one completely different prescription for your left eye. The same goes for finding someone's squat because everyone's hips are a little bit different. Um, we, we, we don't have, you know, every, we don't have the same anatomy. Yes, we have the same bones and articulations and insertions and origins of muscles. But when we talk about you know, lengths of, lengths of our femurs and widths of our pelvises and like where, where our hip bones point and, you know, all that stuff. There's a lot of variables that come into play when it comes to finding what feels like the best fit for someone's squat. You know, whether how, how far apart are their feet going to be? Like which, which direction do their toes point? What is going to be the appropriate depth for somebody where they're, where they're able to keep a good back position? You know, what is like, what is, how deep should someone go? Like what is acceptable? What isn't acceptable? Um, where's the bar go on the shoulders? Does it have to go on the back or can I do a front squat? What about goblet squats? So, you know, in, in the, in the past number of years and, and many of the workshops that I've done with two other fitness professionals prior to COVID, of course, you know, I, I try to get people to lean into this idea of asymmetry 
and that asymmetry is completely normal and that we, you know, we don't live, we don't live or train in textbooks. Like a textbook will tell you like, oh, we have to have a hip width apart stance. Your toes got to point straight forward. That's how you have to squat. You have to have a symmetrical squat. That's a bunch of bullshit, (laughs) you know, because again, everyone's anatomy is a little bit different. Hip sockets have different depths. Hip sockets point in different directions. Like, like I said, there's, everyone's a little bit different. So when I'm working with somebody, I'm trying to find that right out of the gate. Okay, let's find what feels comfortable. So I could simply start somebody off with a goblet squat. And from there, I'm like, okay, let's start with a symmetrical stance. And a lot of times people are like, this feels like fire ants in my hips. This doesn't feel good. But yet the textbook is telling me this is how I should be squatting. And it's always felt bad. And I'm like, well, why are we, why are we squatting that way? To me, that's probably causing more irreparable harm than if I have somebody point their right foot out a little bit more while their left foot stays the same. Or if I have them do like a, maybe a staggered stance on their squat, I'm just trying to find what feels more powerful, what feels more stable, what maybe allows them to squat a little bit deeper. Um, you know, and that's going to be starting point number one. Um, you know, from there, when it comes to like setup and execution of, let's say, a standard back squat or even front squat, there are certain tenets that I think apply across the board, uh, regardless of who I'm working with. You know, the internet likes to argue about hand position and bar position, like high bar squat versus low bar squat or back squats are, are great. Front squats are cheating. I don't know. It's like the internet's stupid. Sometimes like we argue over stupid things. Um, but to me, when it comes to setting any individual up for a squat success, there's, there's maybe a handful of tenets that go across the board. And to me, that is foot pressure. So finding the appropriate uh, foot pressure into the ground, meaning, you know, I want even foot pressure between the front of their foot and the back of the foot. Because what, what I don't want to happen is when somebody puts the barbell on their back or on their shoulders and they squat down, I don't want them to put too much weight in the front of their toes so their heels come off the ground. I don't, I don't want that to happen. And conversely, I don't want them to put too much weight back in their heels so their toes come off the ground. So that I, I got to teach them what I mean by appropriate or, or proper foot pressure, even weight distribution between the front of their foot and the back of the foot. And then we have a slight discussion on like corkscrewing their feet into the ground, like getting tension in the hips and getting people to appreciate that there's, there's, you have to ramp up a lot of tension to, to prepare yourself for a squat. This shouldn't be like a, this shouldn't be a passive thing to do. From there, what I'll talk about is I want them to maintain keeping the barbell over midfoot. So this is basically like starting strength 101. Not that not that Mark Ripito invented that concept, but you know the idea that the imagery of like wh- whether you have the barbell on your shoulders or the barbell on your back, we want to make sure at all times from the start of the, from the start to the descent and back up again that that barbell is staying over midfoot the entire time. That's a great balance point in terms of any, even in terms of leverages on the, on the hips and knees, we're just probably just going to be in a safer position when the bar stays over, over that midfoot position. Um, And then from there, I I always talk about what I, what I would call a a, a creating a flexion moment. And this, this kind of goes into this whole idea of tension again. So before someone descends into their squat, I always coach my clients to take a big gulp of air take and, and, and embrace their abs hard and like kind of do like a little like like mini crunch uh they're not they're not going into flexion they're just creating a flexion moment with their abs so they they lock their ribs down so they so they're not arching into lower back as they descend um because to me 
Um, most people tend to s- squat back too much and they really get a really aggressive arch in their lower back. Early teenation days would say, you got to arch, 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 arch your back. Um, that just eats up a lot of people's backs. It's not wrong, um, but I just find that it, it, it kind of irritates a lot of people's lower backs when they're squatting. So if I, if I cue this idea of creating a flexion moment, big gulp of air, ribs down, and maintaining that rib down position, uh, that tends to be a, a, a much safer way of squatting. And, and a lot of times it improves people's squats too. Like they find that they're, they're able to lift a little bit more weight. Um, and then the last one is just making sure that they're, they're maintaining that brace throughout the descent out of the hole. And they're really not going to exhale their air to the, like the last third part of that, of that, of that set where they're, where they're, they're, they're standing back up. So I know that was a lot, <laughs> sorry, but those, those are just like four or five basic tenets. It's just like, okay, leaning in this idea of asymmetry is fine. You don't have to have a symmetrical stance. So I would encourage people to experiment on their own with how far apart their feet are. Maybe one toe points further out than the other. Maybe they're a staggered stance and just finding what feels better for you. Um, and then from there, it's, about, it's all about foot pressure, barbell over midfoot, creating that flexion moment, um, and then just maintaining a brace. Um, those, those would be like the, the general cues I use with somebody. And then depending on the individual, then it comes down to tinkering, okay, hand position based off shoulder mobility, um, how, you know, what, what is a, an acceptable squat for that individual, um, and stuff like that. I love how individualized that was. And that kind of leads into my next question about how would a runner who wants to actually work with a coach in the gym, how would you suggest they find a great strength coach or even a gym to join? Are there a couple things to, to ask well, or to look for? I think nothing, nothing beats word of mouth. Uh, you know, I think they more than likely if they, if they have friends or families who are, who are already currently working with a, with, with a coach that they're getting good results with, I think that step one, like asking your network, was always a, a good place to start. Um, but I think if you're going to do a cold approach, you, you got to be proactive and you got like with anything else, you got to shop around. Um, so to me, if, if, if I were a runner um, and I was looking for a coach myself, I, and, and I'm interested in something helping me improve my, my running or improve my times or help me prepare for a specific race, I would certainly, I would want to ask that, that, that potential coach, if he or she has ever worked with runners before, do they have experience working with runners? Um, cause the last thing you would want to do is like, just randomly pick a coach who, is a, a, a bodybuilding prep coach, or maybe they work with powerlifters only. Not to say that they wouldn't know how to train a runner, but you know, it stands to reason that you'd want to work with somebody who has experience working with, with endurance athletes. Um, I would also encourage uh, um, them to ask that individual, like, okay, you know, if I were to come in, like, do you do an assessment or what does that assessment process look like? Because uh, again, the last thing you want is just to walk in on day one and, and that, that coach or trainer is just going to put you through some vanilla circuit on, uh, on machines without any individualization whatsoever, not taking into, into consideration your health history, your injury history, your goals. So I think asking them, you know, what, 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 can, what can you expect when you come in for an assessment? Like what are the stuff you're going to look at uh, and how are you going to individualize or cater or program to me and my goals? Uh, that would be a, a pertinent question to ask. And if they 
if you get a bunch of crickets on that answer, then <laughs> move on, turn the page. You, you know, have I your think, answer. Yeah, I think any I think any competent fitness professional should be able to tell you within 10 seconds. Like, yeah, when you come in, this is what we're just going to look at A, B, and C. We're going to in, individualize and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and the words they use matter. Like, I, I, I often tell um, uh, people that, like, there, there are some red flag words that I think some fitness professionals use. So anytime someone starts using the words, everyone, always, never, to me, those are kind of like red flags. Like, everyone should always deadlift. You know, no, that's not, that's not a golden rule. Like, you know, the, I, I, yes, I can kind of get down with that, but not, but everyone doesn't have to do a, any exercise or eat any certain way or do any certain program, you know, and certainly always and never when somebody sort of says, oh, you always have to make sure that you, um, you know, I don't know, that you do this stretch before whatever, like, or you never want to eat past 6 p.m. Like, that's all bullshit. <laughs> like, so any, you know, you, you don't want to, you don't want to hire someone that's pretty, uh, uh, has a lot of stig- stigma with their approaches, or maybe they have an archaic approach. Um, you just want to make sure that they're at all times taking your goals into consideration, uh, and that it, everything is catered to, to you, the, the, the paying client and not them, um, you know, the coach. So those, those would be some, you know, starting points I would, I would encourage some, some endurance athletes to look for when they're, when they're seeking out a coach. I love it. You're so reasonable, Tony. That's why I love talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> now, for for the older athletes out there, yes. are there any considerations or modifications to certain uh, extra, you know, weightlifting routines they might do in the gym for someone who might be like 55 or older? What What are the things these runners should be thinking about? It's uh, you know, when you sent me these questions, I I I kind of gave some like bullet points on how I would answer all these. The one for this one, all I said was kinda. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, but I will elaborate in saying that yes, I think it makes sense that if you have an older individual coming, that you're not working with a 20 year old. Of course, things are going to be a little bit different. Uh, you know, in, in terms of like the intensity of the exercises, maybe in the types of exercises you're using. However. I've always married, well, I can't say I've always married myself to the actual term, but the, the concept I've always married myself to, but this idea of the trainable menu. Uh, I'm a big fan of that, of that term. It's a term that I, I believe I got from Chris Chase, who's a, who's a strength and conditioning coach. Um, and what I mean by the trainable menu is I'm a big fan of training movement patterns. So squat, hinge, push, pull, carry, single leg work, core work. You know, that that's kind of like my list of um, movement patterns that I want to highlight with pretty much everyone. I get my, my, my objective as the coach, whether I'm working with a 20 year old or a 55 year old is to find the trainable menu within, uh, within those movement patterns. So what is, what is going to be the 55 year olds entry point or trainable menu when it comes to the squat pattern? It's my expectation that they're, I'm going to put a barbell on their back. Uh, and we're going to, we're going to find their one rep max on their squat on day one. Heck no. Um, you know, their, their entry points probably going to be more like a goblet squat, you know, they're in, and, and this, but this is not to say that I would not, you know, have, have someone that old do a back squat. It's just, you know, depends on their, their, their training history and their ability level. You know, to me, it comes down to probably the intensities are going to be a little bit different. Like I'm probably not going to be as concerned with training up uh, higher intensity loads. Um, and obviously also the speed at which those exercises are performed. Um, you know, my, my, I still want them performing them, 
but I'm certainly, I, I'm not going to hold them to the same metric uh, of, of bar speed or, or anything like that as, as I would train a, um, a younger athlete. But they're still going to be training those exercises, and I'm, I'm going to do the best of my ability to make sure that we're making appropriate, safe progressions um, toward toward their goal. To make sure that they are getting they are getting stronger. You know, certainly um, I want to be cognizant of that. But um, but yeah, I wouldn't I, it's, I wouldn't go out of my way to tell somebody, yeah, you're you're 55, like you you, you absolutely can't do these exercises. Like no, that's that's a bunch of bullshit. That goes back to my rule about everyone always and never. You know, it's just, it's just me, me as the, as the coach, I need to do my job to find that individual's trainable menu and what, what's going to be their entry points for those movement patterns. Yeah. It just seems to me that, you know, if someone comes in that's older, the main issues are number one, they might just be in not as great shape as a 20 year old. They might have less mobility than a 20 year old, or they just might have existing health issues that a younger person might not have that have to be worked around. But besides that, it's really just kind of, kind of tailoring whatever the program is to your fitness level, which, you know, you do for anybody, no matter what their age. Yep. So I, I just, I just rather avoid the, the stigmatization of, no, because someone's X old, they, they shouldn't be doing X exercises or, I mean, I just think that's just a, that's just a, a, a slippery, a slippery rope that I don't want to walk across, you know, because again, if I, if I do that out of the gate there, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to plant the seed in their head that they're somehow limited in what they can do. I want, I want to, I want, I want to focus more on what they can do and not what they can't. There it is, friends. I hope you enjoyed this wide-ranging discussion of a variety of topics in the strength and conditioning world as they relate to runners. If you want to take your weightlifting to the next level and hear our entire conversation, you can sign up at strengthrunning.com HPL. And a big thanks to our sponsor, Elemental Labs, for their support. If you have a high sweat rate, or if you're just like me and you have very salty sweat, it's important to dial in your hydration. Elemental Labs is offering a free sample pack with four different flavors and eight individual packets at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You only have to pay for shipping, which is just five bucks here in the United States. Now, Elemental Labs makes electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks with no sugar, artificial ingredients, or colors. And lately, I do feel like I've been cheating on the citrus flavor, my all-time favorite, because watermelon is fast becoming my salt of choice. I've been going to running camps and just giving (laughs) these salty mixes out to my friends and folks I meet here in Denver, and everyone absolutely loves it. So for those athletes running five or more days per week, maybe you're training for a half marathon or longer, or you're out just outside in the heat, an electrolyte replacement can help your hydration and recovery. And I'm very encouraged by the fact that Navy SEAL teams, Olympic teams, and pro athletes have started using elemental electrolyte supplements to improve their performance. Check them out at drinklmnt.com slash strength running. You can try their sample pack and get your hydration optimized for this season. We're also supported by Inside Tracker, and they want to help you do what you love for life. They want you to be a successful, healthy runner for decades. Inside Tracker was founded more than 10 years ago by a collection of scientists, aging, genetics, and biometrics experts, all to help you analyze your body's data and get a firm idea of how well you're responding to training. 
Now, understanding your body's biomarkers from stress hormones like cortisol to testosterone to even levels of vitamin D can all help you figure out if you're overtraining, undertraining, or optimally training. It can also give you a window into any red flags that you might want to discuss with your doctor. But the best part is that after they give you all these personal optimal ranges and where you fall within these ranges, they then give you a host of ways to improve those markers through either diet, lifestyle, or exercise. I've personally gotten three ultimate tests from them, and I just love the process. It's fairly simple, and the results are just really fascinating. For a limited time, you can get 25% off any test that they offer at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. Now, this is a big deal because these tests are somewhat expensive. But stack the odds in your favor and give yourself every advantage with a personalized blood test. Go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning to save 25% today. All right, runners, thank you so much for listening to today's show. You help me make it what it is today. If you got value from this episode, help another runner discover the show by forwarding this episode to them or leaving a review in Apple Music. We'll talk soon.